You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's podcast, I'm here in Windy Perth, but I'm excited to be with Daniel Isenson from With Architecture Studio, the winners of the 2022 Horbury Hunt Commercial Award for Kyara College. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So, Daniel, we're just going to start with your childhood, and it's a little bit different from most of the people that I've interviewed. Can you describe to me where you grew up? Yeah, I grew up in Argentina. I was born there, and uh, I spent my first 25 years. I come from a family of architects, so my father and my grandfather are and were architects. So I pretty much grew up in a, you may call it an architectural environment, from very early ages. And I guess you're one of the first people we've had out of all of these episodes that has grown up in an architectural environment. For you, what did that sort of look like? Well, I guess it was normal. Yeah. But it was everywhere. I mean, I, I do remember going to site visits with my dad. And on Saturdays, you know, back in Argentina, back in the days, mm. you didn't need all the PPE and um, anyone could access building sites. And, and as a kid, sometimes I would go there by myself. Uh, people would know me and I would just be there. During weekends, there was one allocated person for the whole site that would cook a barbecue for all the worksmen there. Mm-hmm. So sometimes going there, it was, it was a nice communal experience, you know, right. call it. And um, then being as a child, you know, going to my dad's office and playing around with rotrings and pens and, you know, with all the stencils and mm. doing my first drawings with ink and working during the holidays doing the blueprints, you know, yes. those days. They were you know, done with ammonium machines. and So it was all part of an upbringing and the travelling and visiting you know, kind of endless walks throughout many places in the States or Europe. Yes, going all around the world. Almost in, in pilgrimage, you know, going to visit fantastic pieces of architecture or just being in cities, old cities, and going to see cathedrals and churches. And that was very, um, I guess, influential and in fact, that's where I decided that I wanted to follow the path and be an architect. Was it, did it come naturally to you? I have to say that yes, yeah. it did. And despite within my family, you know, it was going like, take your time, don't mm, feel the pressure, etc., etc. That's where that's where things ended up. And I mean, I'm just curious: did your father and grandfather was it that a family business? It was, and it still is. It's yes. um, a rather important or large practice back in Argentina. It's called Eisenson Arquitectos. Mm-hmm. And it started in the late 30s. Right. Uh, it's, I believe it's the second oldest architectural practice in the country. Mm-hmm. And it's still going. So I have a, another brother that's involved in the practice as well. Okay, well, we're going to get to a little bit later while you're here and not there, but where did you study? So are you sort of saying that when everyone was saying take your time, was this in high school or was this when you were choosing? That was, you know, towards the end. Yep. Uh, high school and then, yes, choosing and making that decision. 
And then when you were being sort of taken around the world or at this young age, were there any architects outside of your father and your grandfather that had made an impression on you? I think at the beginning, more than architects, it was spaces. Yeah. I I mean, as an adolescent or even as a child, I mean, you grab it, keep and put it in, you know, either Notre Dame or Beauvais, you know, the tallest Gothic cathedral Mm. ever ever built, or in Paris in the Saint-Chapelle, which is, you know, incredibly transparent. All you can see is light coming in through the Vitor. It was an astonishing experience. It really impacts you mm. from, from a perception point of view mm. and understanding how the meaning of religion in a different way. That was back uh, in the 14th century. It was, let's call it social media. You know, mm. it, was, it was a way that in those days the church had to, you know, kind of disseminate a message. That's right. You know, through their buildings. Yeah. And just out of curiosity, is your father's firm, was that commercial or residential or both? It's mainly multi-residential. Right, okay. And always that has been the key kind of area of expertise, but you would say it's commercial. Yeah, okay. So you're at university or you've chosen university Mm -hmm. and you've chosen architecture. Uh And where did you study? I studied in Buenos Aires at the Universidad de Buenos Aires and I graduated there. And what was it like for you? I mean, did you... Find university what you expected. I mean, you already knew a lot about what architecture entailed. Mm. Did it fulfil that for you? I mean, you're coming out of high school where you do all those things that you don't like and you have to do, (laughs) and then all of a sudden you go into university and then you're, you're, you know, or at least I find myself in very comfortable in in my element. Mm. But then towards the middle of the career, you start breaking out. I mean, you start being challenged mm-hmm. and you start really venturing out of, of that comfort zone and exploring other avenues, other ways of thinking, definitely you know, opening up to what's going on in the world that is less related to you know, tradition mm-hmm. and, and where you come from. What would be the, the biggest thing you took from university that you probably didn't expect? I think that university was... A fantastic excuse to explore it. Okay. It's exploration. Yes. You know? And I think that, you know, the minute you got a book in your hands that you find, you know, attractive, wow, that's a find. Mm. And the minute you discover new things or, you know, kind of are permeated by, let's call it either thought or mm. what others are doing, mm. that I think was very enriching. Yeah. And I think also that, experience that you spend a lot of time at university. Yes. I mean, now it's slightly a bit different. There's less contact hours with the teachers and I think a lot of things. Learning is different now, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And spending long hours at uni or with other students in the studio or, you know, long nights, that's that's also something that was very enriching. Yeah. Enriching because I met a lot of people, you learn from others as well. Yeah. And, Daniel, you finished university and then where do you go? So towards the end of my uni years, I started being attracted towards reading and philosophy and also looking towards the east, so India, China. Okay. Um, so when I finished university, I wouldn't say in, in record time, but I did it non-stop. Straight, yeah. So I said, enough, I'm taking a year off, and I did travel a bit 
Okay. Then and there, I took, yeah. I took a sabbatical. Nice. And first, it was 1996, so I went to the UIA, the International Architectural Conference that was in Barcelona, and then would be doing a bit of pilgrimage, mm-hmm. you, would, you would call it. Yes. Um, I took some time and visited Alvarado's office. I went to Finland oh. and then you know, flew to India and Nepal and Thailand and Vietnam, wow. et cetera, et cetera. So it was a very, again, another very enriching experience during that time. Mm. And, well, it was so rich that I ended up meeting my now wife and that's the reason why I ended up in Perth. Right. But before that, you went back... I went back after one year, mm-hmm. and then I spent another three years in Argentina. Yes. I then moved to Sydney. I spent two and a half years in Sydney, and then both me and my partner moved to London. Oh, wow. Where I did a master's at the Architectural Association. Mm-hmm. That went for about a year and a half, mm-hmm. and then from there I stayed working for what, about two years at Foster and Partners uh-huh. and then decided to start the journey back. Okay. And part of that journey was to come here to mm-hmm. Perth and have a, have a little vacation and connect with my partner's family and then keep going back to the Eastern Seaboard where I had you know, some potential jobs aligned and where I was looking to go and that was when we started a family. So we decided to stay here for a while, Yeah, which was quite frightening. Uh, <laughs> I, um, I've always lived in big cities and yeah. I was always really attracted to, you know, that kind of buzzing urban environments. So thinking about Perth was a bit of a challenge at the beginning. And then I met Jeff Wong and then Dick Donaldson, mm-hmm. who were the two heads of Donaldson and Wong, mm-hmm. and started with them in 2005. The rest is history. And I'd be interested to get your perspective on, I guess, Australian architecture. You've been all around the world. Mm. But what sort of stands out to you as the key differences? Hmm. It was interesting because I remember being in London and the um, commenting there with colleagues how interesting it was that none of the it's called the architectural firms didn't work more in Australia or yeah. didn't have more of a presence mm. in Australia. And, you know, kind of the reverse reflecting on the fact that, you know, renowned architects by then, that there was a different image, you know, yes. from, from Australian architecture mm-hmm. outside of Australia. And that's possibly there is a stereotype that, that the Australian architecture deals with weather and deals with yeah. the sun and deals with shade and then from... Europe or South America, you see, or you used to, you know, see the architecture of Glenmark, or, mm. and, and it is quite striking. I mean, now it's very, very different because the word regionalism has, you know, kind of taken a very, very different route. You know, at one point, you know, when I was a student, yeah. there was, you know, kind of all that movement, the critical regionalism, and architects from Spain, you know, started coming Coming up, coming up mm. and Caesar and sort of Molda, and then you started seeing architects from South America as well. But I think that... Time has passed and the whole, I guess, global thinking has taken on that. So, of course, now you you do see the big firms or international practices with a presence in Australia and big architectural, you know, kind of practice from Australia working in the Middle East. Yes. And how did you kind of address, I mean, I have been here in Perth on Christmas Day when it was 46 degrees. And out of all of the Australian cities, I think, Perth is one of the most extreme climates. And also 
I mean, it's built from that. There's this real strong European influence. Obviously, mm. there's a lot of brick. Was that something that you had to get used to or...? Interesting, when we decided that we were staying, mm. we rented a house. It was a, a weatherboard mm-hmm. kind of house. And it was hot in summer and cold in winter. And then mm. when we finally made the decision to stay in Perth for a while and we bought a house, and that house was like a fibre house. So, okay. again, you know, kind of cold in winter and mm-hmm. hot in summer, I was going like, hmm. There's something in here, you know, it's like, you know, the, the houses in Perth are really, really poorly designed for weather. Yeah. To the point that the house we bought was, you know, kind of completely in a lane, had to be re-stamped, you know, holes in the walls and, you know, kind of all these things. So I never really had the experience of living in a brick house mm. you know, in Perth, but definitely the old kind of brick and tile houses, you go there in winter, they're, they're very cold. Mm. It's only in the in last, I would say five to ten years that, you know, people start thinking about reverse brick veneer and, you know, yes. being a bit more climate conscious and, you know, things start changing. You know. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Kiara College and what that project was and how it came about. One of the things that we've been doing for a while is educational architecture. Mm-hmm. And it's something that started way before I joined the practice. Mm-hmm. But I managed to, you know, almost join them and adopt a discourse and an approach. So, I mean, schools are usually quite big campuses. I mean, mm. here the, the typical secondary college or high school is developed in 12 or 13 hectare sites. Yes. So we treat these projects almost as a mini urbanism exercise. One of the biggest things I noticed coming back to Perth all the time is that it's just everything's kind of spread out, mm. you know, from, different from just cities, but particularly okay. on the east coast. Yeah, and and the way the way the city has been growing on a very you know kind of narrow mm. linear corridor north and south means that the road go first, and then the subdivisions, and then what you call the civic infrastructure. Mm. So in your typical suburb, you will see your mall. Mm-hmm. You have your Bunnings and you have your petrol station, your McDonald's, your, you know, kind of vet. And that's the civic infrastructure. Mm-hmm. That's the civic space. So we are very conscious that with projects in schools, we have an opportunity to provide something else than just a place for learning mm-hmm. for the community. And therefore, we deal with the image of these schools and the way people move, you know, in and out have good conversations with the clients or the schools about, you know, the way they share the facilities with the wider community. And usually we try to provide a a bit of respite from that intense development, Mm. suburban development that occurs in the suburbs. So when it came to developing Chiara, I mean, just to give you an idea, Chiara follows a series of projects that are focused more on the inner suburbs and there are expansions or additions to existing yes. existing campuses. Mm-hmm. So in the, you would say, 2005 to 2015, there was a lot of emphasis in new campuses. Mm. So, you know, go for growth. And I think 2015, 16, you know, and thereafter, a lot of projects have been coming online which deal with additions or renovations to existing school. Mm. And usually the way these projects are put together is, you know, there's a statement of need, the school mm. needs A, B and C. And then those, that is put into a business case, costed and then, you know, put out you know, to industry. 
So what we really try to do is go beyond the individual needs of a school or of a college. So in this case, you went into Kiara and the first thing you see is car parking, trees, and very difficult to identify where the entry is. Mm. You could not orient yourself. You go into the admin and nearby there's a courtyard that no one uses because it's a different level, you know, mm. from where the students are. And start to understand that the campus as an entity has little presence towards the street and the community. And you start, you know, kind of digging out or in conversation with the stakeholders, which is the school. What is the school about? So in this case, Kiara, what's very, very interesting is very culturally diverse. It's not a school that is buzzing in terms of their population, so they've been quite stable. In mm-hmm. fact, they have been losing some students to other schools or other school developments yeah. nearby. So as much as they wanted, you know, a new performing arts centre and a student service kind of facilities, Thing that they also needed or wanted to revamp their identity, mm. to become a new campus and be attractive mm. towards the community. Mm. And, I mean, one of the things the jury loved about the project and I loved was the, I guess, the way that the brick kind of comes out of the ground and mm. it feels like it's really sort of rising. And then also just how you've used the two different colours and, and sort of really direct people to the entrance. So... Very interesting, from day dot, the intent, it was a very clear intent to consolidate the development. So, again, in that building, we're talking particularly about the performing arts Mm -hmm. and the administration building, student services. It was an intent not to express them as two buildings, Mm -hmm. but to express them as one building, consolidate, increase the footprint, and take the forecourt, also the courtyard, the centre of the school, and the landscape area to the back to the street. Mm -hmm. That way, consolidate a development footprint and out of that development footprint, so create a background to then bring the building up. Mm -hmm. Brick was a natural choice, and we've been working with bricks now for a long time, Mm -hmm. and it's a way of progressing and developing our architectural language and identity and attitude, Mm -hmm. and this was no exception. So if you go back to the design, performing arts centres are quite restricted in their openings because you want to maintain a controlled environment. Mm-hmm. So the, again, the intent was to almost build a campus marker by you know, building an object. Yes. And all the fenestration to the administration is facing the courtyard. Mm-hmm. So that gives you a really, I guess, welcoming background you know, to the new entry. Mm-hmm. Because of the way the campus is configured, we saw the opportunity for, you know, that building, again, we say that building is the two programmatic yes. aspects. Yeah. So to become one building, but also to become a welcoming statement mm. you know, into the campus. And that is when the whole brick envelope starts developing two components. One of interiority, mm. so that's taking the curves with the white brick. Mm-hmm an exterior component, which is expressed, you know, throughout the red brick. Mm. So I guess it's a reference back to classic language. So you have a a little kind of podium that is expressed in slightly different bricks. Those Mm. are the bifurcated reds. Yes. So they're not your classic red-orange. They are bricks that we developed 2011 with Midland Brick. Yeah. And there's a story to that. So back in 2009... 
we did a quite large project on redeveloping a school, which was Governor Sterling Senior mm-hmm. High School. Yeah. And there was a determination there to go back to brick. Mm-hmm. Then the office had been embarked in several high schools using uh, concrete and concrete block and tilted panel. Mm-hmm. But we could not do a building that wasn't brick in Midland. Okay, or, well, or, yeah. Or, or, in, or, in Wood, <laughs> or in Woodbridge. Yes. So looking through the yards, I remember seeing in a corner a bag of bricks that I'd go, those bricks. And they had like a purple sheen. Yes. But they were not glazed. So speaking with Chris, I asked, well, where's this you know, kind of bricks coming from? And he said, oh, they're from Geraldton. Geraldton bricks. Geraldton bricks, yeah. So... You know, came to know that they were the only remaining stack in WA by then. Yeah. And they were producing bricks, cooking them you know, in the old way, where most of the larger producers shifted towards uh, tunnel kilns. Yes, yeah. So those bricks, there's a process by which you starve the kiln of oxygen towards the end of the process and mm. they burn, basically. Yes, so we used those bricks for, for Governor Sterling. Yes. But it was a, a difficult process. Right. Because it was difficult to maintain supply. Yes. And a lot of anecdotes, you know, throughout that project. <laughs> anyway, we, after, you know, in subsequent project, we go, how can we do this using a tunnel kiln? Yeah. So with Chris, he did a few runs and achieved, you know, kind of that brick with a bit of a sheen. And... Um, Called them Byford Reds because they were for then we were doing a school in Byford. So there's that podium or that plinth, you know, um, which has a different stack, and you can see that contrast between the Midland Red and and that kind of Byford Red, Mm -hmm. which is a bit of a sheen. It's quite subtle and it's quite pleasing to see how it came. And then obviously the crown of the building done in white aluminium cladding. Yeah. So in a way, that's quite a unique or quite a remarkable building because despite being subject to an incredible amount of constraints, I mean, this is, we're talking about public buildings, mm. so, so public buildings, public schools, yep. and you actually go there and, and experience the build, the build type and the build quality. It was quite remarkable trying to pull this one out, mm. you know, where by you know, using brick, we were able to explore kind of that almost tectonic relationship between the two type of bricks, the red and the white, and kind of subtle differentiation at that plinth level with the bifid reds. But also, not easy to achieve, but the parapets have no kind of flashing protruding off, but the flashing is recessed and it's all basically bricks on end. So you can see that and they tuck under the white cladding so it's quite a consistent, you know, kind of mm. building envelope with that main entry, you know, as that welcoming statement and those oculars or oculi, you know, bringing light into that courtyard. Yeah. And um, you're right, I mean, it is hard to achieve with those parapets. It looks easy, but it's difficult yeah. to achieve. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I would say the building looks relatively simple. So it's simple in form. It's not engaging in formal gymnastics. No, but I think the way that you've just spoken about the choice of the bricks, I mean, it's really fascinating. So much thought has gone into that. Mm. How long did construction take? Well, interesting, it took probably took a bit more than what it was meant mm-hmm. to be. Buildings like that take around 55 weeks to build. Yeah. Okay. So just over a year. 
plus contingencies whether it's it yeah. but we were hit by covid yep and problem was not the supply no okay so the problem was labor so mm. the builder was losing brickies left right and center and it was probably quite a miracle that still there was a, pro- a consistent look yes because there were probably many different brickies working on it at the same time yeah don't you think it's so much for that? And um, as you know, we the jury loved it. I know our members loved it. And it, it is, I just think it's, it's a big sort of monolithic building that I feel it has got exactly all of those things that you said, very subtle aspects to it, but at the same time really joining everything together and having that beautiful presence about it. Look, it was um, a great joy for us to, the building to put together, mm. but also it was quite meaningful for us because... About 2015, there was a big shift where Donaldson & Horn became with yes. Architecture Studio. Yes. And a couple of buildings of which Chiara is one of them, was the first series of buildings that were not a crossover but was started as with. On top of that, the people involved, project architect, design architect, mm. have been with us you know, for a long time, so since they were students. Mm-hmm. And now it's part of the journey into becoming now their associates. Yes. And they were fully responsible for this building. So not only it's a great outcome from an architectural point of view, but it's a milestone for us as it really represents new identity with new people taking over and coming and starting a new journey into the practice. Mm, I love that. Mm. Thank you so much for your time. We're going to do the rapid-fire questions. Fantastic. There are no wrong answers. Let's do it. Okay, reading the news, a newspaper or online? Online. Handwriting or typing? A lot of handwriting, a lot of typing, both, depending on what I'm writing. Okay. For sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, pen or e-pen? Oh, pen. Do you like to read books or listen to audiobooks? Read. What's important to you, style or substance? Both, of course. Coffee or tea? Whiskey. No, coffee. <laughs> coffee. I know someone who says coffee in the morning and, you know, wine at night. But TV shows or movies? I think now that you, you have to add series, you know, TV. Because <laughs> at the moment uh, it's, it's a bit of both. You know, big, big fan of movies because it's two hours. Yes. And, you know, gonna deliver the message. Antique or brand new? No, I would say brand new. Call or text? Definitely call. Travel back in time or into the future? Back in time. Exterior or interior? Exterior. Video games or board games? Board games. Complex or simple with relation to design? Simple. But simple is complex. You have to be very complex to reach simple. (laughs) Otherwise. It's impossible to do it. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Look, no, thank you for coming to our offices and pleasure being with you. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.